This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. It's season four of Office Hours, and we're studying the book of Hebrews. The theme, Jesus is really better. Hebrews was most likely written in the mid-60s of the first century A.D. to a predominantly Jewish congregation that was being tempted to turn away from Christ, back to the Old Covenant, back to the types and shadows, and to a rabbinical understanding of the Old Testament. Joining us on Office Hours today to talk about Hebrews chapter 3 is W. Robert Godfrey, professor of church history and president of Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of several books, including John Calvin, Pilgrim and Pastor, Reformation Sketches, and most recently, Westminster Seminary, California, A New Old School. These titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. We're talking about Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 today. It's an interesting passage with a lot of richness, and so we're going to try and take this thing as a section, beginning with Hebrews 3, 7 and and continuing through 4, 13. We'll see how it goes. It goes well. We may not, but it goes well. That's That's always the encouragement when you come to Scripture. You can have that confidence. It goes well. At the beginning and the end of this section is a theme that we might not expect in Hebrews, and that is the way Hebrews talks about the Old Testament. Verse 7 says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then goes on to quote uh, quote Psalm 95. Talk a little bit about the significance of the way Hebrews thinks of Scripture. No, I won't. (laughs) Okay, this is clearly going to be an interesting interview. Uh, Your Your Honor, I request the permission to treat the witness as hostile. (laughs) No, Scott, uh, that's a great question and a great point, and I think it uh, draws us back to remembering that in the study of the book of Hebrews, we always have to keep the big picture in mind. The argument sometimes becomes rather intricate and sometimes a little strange to modern ears, but all of what goes on in the book of Hebrews focuses in one way or another on the big picture, namely, is Jesus in fact better than all of the people and institutions of the Old Testament? Is Jesus the fulfillment of all of that? Because he's addressing people who were Jewish who became Christian and are now having second thoughts. They're beginning to wonder for themselves, is Jesus better than Moses? Is the Christian church better than the temple? Are the promises of the Old Testament really fulfilled in Jesus or not? Is he the true Messiah or not? And in a whole variety of ways, the book of Hebrews as a kind of giant sermon is addressing that big problem and answering over and over again in all sorts of ways, yes, Jesus is better. And part of that argument that's being presented is who's right about the Old Testament and how it should be interpreted. And so here in this really pivotal section, I think, of the book, it is precisely an appeal to the Old Testament scriptures that the letter of Hebrews is making to try to make the case to convince people that Jesus is better and they should stick with him and not apostatize. And so the point being made in Hebrews 3.7 is not just a kind of abstract point about the character of Scripture, namely that the Holy Spirit speaks there, but it's very concrete that Christians, every bit as much as Jews, believe the Scriptures of the Old Testament to be inspired by God, to be the very Word of God, to be flowing from God. 
the point is being made, we believe that what the Scriptures say are what God says. And that's an important point in the argument of Hebrews, but it's a very important point for the Church today and in every age. Isn't it subtly implied, too, that if they're really going to have a high view of the Old Testament, they're being lured back to Moses. And so if you're really going to pay attention to the Old Testament in the way that it wants to be regarded, then you have to understand, A, the Holy Spirit gave that text, not the rabbis, and B, if you're going to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, you have to pay attention to what the text actually says. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 95. Exactly. That's why I think you're exactly right to say we have to look at the beginning of this section and what it says about the Scripture, but also at the end and what it says about the Scripture, because after quoting Psalm 95, the second half of Psalm 95, and then going into a very detailed reflection and exegesis and interpretation of Psalm 95, then at the end he says, now this word, that's implicit in what he's saying, this word we've just been looking at, you need to remember its character. Its source is the Holy Spirit, but its character is that it's living— it's active, it's sharp, that this word is not just a dead letter. This word is not just something to read and shrug. And I think there's a very important word to the church today where there's a lot of willingness to read things Scripture says and sort of shrug and say, so what, or is it really true, or let's debate that. Here is this powerful statement about the character of God's Word. It's it's alive, particularly in the sense of it's enlivening, and it's active, that is, it's accomplishing something, and it's sharp. It creates divisions. And of course, this goes back to the theme of Hebrews. On what side of the divide do you stand? Are you standing with the Holy Spirit? Are you standing with Christ? Are you standing with the Scripture? Or are you standing against those things? And it really ends with this rather solemn warning the effect of the Scripture is that it exposes who you are. Who are you? And that's why Psalm 95 is so important, because Psalm 95 is all about who stands with the Lord and who stands against the Lord, and contains that solemn and almost shocking warning where God says of his own people, I loathe that generation for 40 years. What this letter is, is saying to people who are thinking about giving up on Jesus, do you want to be those who are loathed by God? It's very, very solemn. Isn't it also true that if we get this part, that some of the apparent difficulties in chapter 6 and maybe in chapter 10, I won't say go away, but we can mitigate some of those difficulties if we understand this language. Sometimes I think people take chapter 6 in isolation. They go straight there without stopping to see what's happening here in chapter 3 in the quotation of Psalm 95. Right. So give us the original setting of Psalm 95. Well, Psalm 95 is a fascinating psalm, and we could spend a long time looking at that. And from the look in your eye, you're afraid I might. No, I think we should. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Psalm 95 is... We should even sing it, maybe. Definitely. But not, 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 not you today. and me, yeah. but uh, the church should sing it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Psalm 95 is part of a series of psalms in the 90s in the Psalter that are an invitation to worship. And Psalm 95 is one of the most familiar, most frequently used invitations to worship in its first half. And it contains this warm sense of God's love for his people, God's provision for his people, the salvation that the rock who is our God has provided for us, that we're invited to recognize him as king and to come into his presence. And then all of a sudden, the mood of the psalm shifts dramatically from this warm invitation to a very serious warning. That warning takes the people of God back to one of the, the really critical moments in Israel's history 
as it's wandering in the wilderness. And we know it's critical because it's a moment that's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament and referred to in the New Testament. And it's the moment described in Exodus 17, where Israel has come to camp at Rephidim, and there seems to be a shortage of water. And this leads to a sort of crisis amongst the people. And once again, they complain, has the Lord just brought us out into the wilderness to die? Are we just going to die of thirst? And it's, of course, staggering when you think about it. The God who defeated the Egyptians, the God who opened the Red Sea, the God who drowned Pharaoh and all his host, the God who has been leading Israel by the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire every day and night, the God who has provided for them over and over again food and water in the wilderness. Now, all of a sudden, they are grumbling and complaining. This place will become known as Massa and Meribah, the place of grumbling and complaining. It's not just your standard grumbling or complaining, but the Old Testament makes clear there's something very special here because this is the place they put the Lord to the test. That's very interesting language, and we need to pause and reflect on exactly what that means. And we're told exactly what it means in Exodus 17, where the test is this, is the Lord among us or not? Now, what's interesting about that is that's a question of faith. Do we believe that God is among us or not? Now, again, from our point of view, looking backwards, we can say, how is it possible they could raise that question? How is it possible, having seen all that they've seen, that they could raise that question. It may even be that as they raised the question, they could see the pillar of cloud. But that's the question they raise, and this is a fundamental question of unbelief. Mm. And it's that unbelief that is the great test, the, the way in which they have tested God. They have grumbled behind his back to say, has he brought us here? Is he with us? Is Moses his spokesman? Is his word true? Are we just going to die here? Is this whole effort in vain? And that great moment then is incorporated into Psalm 95, where his, Israel through its whole history is being warned, don't be like the people at Rephidim. Don't be unbelievers. Don't reject the covenant of God as a whole. And it's that that the Lord loathes. It's not just that they grumbled one day. You know, we don't want to trivialize what goes on there. It's that they've lost confidence in the Lord. It's not just that they had a bad day. No. What's being described both in Exodus 17 and in Psalm 95, which are separated by, let's say, 500 years or so. And so Psalm 95 is looking back and remembering and warning the Israelites. And now a thousand years later, the writer to the Hebrews, again, is appealing to this episode. And it's in the context of apostasy, right? So it's not just right. grumbling. Right. That's why he invokes Psalm 95. So this business of hardening the heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, this hardening of the heart isn't a momentary thing. It's not a transient thing. It's not a light thing. We could be misled, perhaps, by this language. Exactly. This is a fundamental rejection of God that the people were tempted at Rephidim, as it's described in Exodus 17. It's a fundamental rejection of God that Psalm 95 is warning against and, of course, had recurred from time to time in Israel's history, leading ultimately to the exile. And now the author of the letter to the Hebrews is rightly using that scripture and that history to warn members of the church as a covenant community not to enter into that same kind of apostasy that members of the covenant community entered into in times past. So it's a very appropriate and a very powerful use of that text. Hebrews 3.10 says, quoting Psalm 95, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And he says just above, they saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked 
with that generation. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's a very serious warning, a solemn warning. Now, does it mean, as we look back on Exodus 17 and Psalm 95 particularly, does it mean there that it's possible to be one of God's people really and then really not be one of God's people? And of course, now we have to define one of God's people. I think what we see from the scripture as a whole is that it is possible to be a member of the covenant community, that it is possible to have the sign of the covenant placed on you, whether it's circumcision or baptism. It's possible to at times appear to be a sincere professor of the faith, but then it is also possible that at some later point it is revealed that that was really never true. And sometimes this happens in, in large numbers, right? Absolutely. In America, I get the sense that sometimes we're tempted to think, well, if a great number of people think something, it must be true. But if we look at the history of Israel, there are many times when a great number of people thought things that were profoundly false. Right. What we see here, and this makes it slightly more complicated yet, is that only two people of this whole generation actually enter the rest of the promised land. The rest here, it's rather interesting, and it's interesting the way it'll be developed in Hebrews 3 and 4, because rest is, on the one hand, a physical place in Psalm 95, but then later it'll also be talked about rest in sort of chronological terms relative to the seventh day of creation and the Sabbath. But the idea of rest, whether a physical place or a chronological time— is a goal, is, a, is an anticipation of where God will lead his people. And what we see here is almost all of Israel fails to enter that rest, at least in its symbolic role. Even Moses fails to enter symbolically into the land. So it, it's a sign of how serious it is. And it should lead us to think seriously about the church in our time. The fact that a building has a signed church in front of it does not mean it's part of the people of God in a real and profound way. There can be Lots of numbers of people who have really broken covenant with God and stand under his judgment, just as Hebrews 3 and 4 warn. It's not even the case, is it, that where one sees a great deal of religious enthusiasm that one is necessarily seeing a church. There are episodes in the history of Israel where there's a great deal of religious enthusiasm. I'm thinking about the calves at Bethel and Dan. Right. I imagine people went there with solemnity, enthusiasm, and vigor, and we sometimes tend to mistake that for church. Absolutely. The same thing with the golden calf in the wilderness. The golden calf was called Yahweh. This wasn't like later where they worshiped the Baal of Peor. This is still, they thought, worshiping Yahweh. It's just that they worshiped him in an utterly false way. What the scripture brings home to us again and again is how serious God is about these things. And it's sort of shocking that in light of the careful revelation of God about the seriousness with which he takes his name and his worship and his truth, that the church can be somewhat cavalier often about these things. You suggested earlier that the rest of Psalm 95.11 and Hebrews 3.11 has more than one sense. Explain that a little bit. In Psalm 95, I would say that it's very clear what is in mind when the psalmist says, they shall never enter my rest, is that they shall never enter my promised land. And in that sense, the rest then is rather clearly the rest from the bondage of Egypt, the rest from the enemies that oppose them on the way, and the rest that they enjoy as they enter the promised land, have their own land where they have their own freedom. Of course, that rest, we believe, and why that rest is still relevant to Christians and why the use of the psalm in that sense is appropriate in Hebrews, is that 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 rest always was a sign, a pointer, sometimes we say a type, of the 
eternal rest that is coming for the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth. So God's purpose was to symbolize, to express for the people the ultimate rest they would enjoy by a temporary rest in the land that always pointed beyond itself. God's saving purpose never was that his people would be limited to this narrow band of land, but that his people would inherit the whole earth. Just as the whole earth was created for God's people by God, just as the whole earth fell into sin and rebellion against God, so God's final purpose is to create a new heaven and a new earth in which the whole earth then is a place in which righteousness dwells and in which his people dwell in fellowship with him. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480- 8474 Westminster Seminary California for Christ his gospel and his church what do you think about connecting the rest here in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3 with the continued observance of the weekly Sabbath for Christians oh I was going to save that for the next half hour and talk okay. about it at a great length well, then we'll do that. So stay tuned. Okay, because I, I think it's a subtle and very important shift that takes place from thinking about rest as place to thinking about rest as time and showing how brilliantly they're brought together here. All right, well, then stay tuned for the next episode, two weeks hence, of Office Hours, when Dr. Godfrey will unravel one of the great mysteries of the New Testament. And until that time, let's look at Hebrews 3.12 then as the pastor moves beyond the quotation of Psalm 95 and begins to apply it and preach it, as it were, in this passage. Take care, brothers, lest there be in uh, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What does it mean to say these kinds of things in the context of the New Covenant? Well, I think in the context of the New Covenant, we need to recognize that the New Testament is full of warnings to people who are naming the name of Christ, to people who are members of the church, to those who are part of the covenant community, that the Christian life is a life calling to constant renewal in faith and commitment to Christ, that because we believe we're saved by grace alone according to God's eternal decree doesn't mean that we're sort of on a roller coaster ride from the top to the bottom in which we just glide along. That's not the dynamic of the Christian life. It's not what's portrayed in the Old Testament. It's not what's portrayed particularly in the Psalter. It's not what's portrayed in the New Testament. We need warnings. We need exhortations. We need calls to commitment, and we find them abundantly in the New Testament. And if we're not willing to preach those things, if we're not willing to take seriously those things, we're not taking seriously New Testament religion, in my opinion. And I'm right. 
<laughs> well, on this point, anyway. Yeah, I don't think anyone doubts that exactly. One question that comes to mind is how we ought to think about those warnings relative to the fact that congregations then under David and prior to that under Moses and now under the new covenant under Christ in the sense of redemptive history, always have been under Christ, of course, in the broad sense. But how now in the new covenant when you have in a visible congregation such as we have here, say, circa 65 A.D., some who are professing Christ and, as we've been discussing, not actually believing, and some professing Christ and actually believing, do those warnings speak in exactly the same way to both kinds of people in the one covenant community? Mm, Yes and no. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your equivocation. Well, I think they are serious warnings to everybody. Sometimes people talk about hypothetical warnings. Well, it's not hypothetical if you don't heed the warning. And when Paul says to himself or of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, lest having preached to others, I too should be lost, Paul knows he's elect. Paul knows he has true faith. Paul knows that Christ will preserve him. But he also knows that he needs to be exhorted, that he needs to be warned, that he needs to be encouraged. It's sort of like what we find with David when he falls into his very serious sin. I think David knew he was elect. I think David knew that he was a true believer. But David also needed, in the midst of his sin and struggle, for the prophet to come to him and say, you are the man, and to lead him to repentance. And I think that's what's going on here I mean, the preacher, as he looks at the congregation, the writer of Hebrews, as he looked at the recipients of the letter, can't know who's elect and who's not elect. And so these warnings come to everybody. In a certain sense, they come to everybody equally, but they have different effects depending on how the Lord in his wisdom uses those warnings. We'll call this language law. The same law word to the congregation has multiple effects simultaneously. Right. And, and, I, and, and that's significant. So that if a person is sitting in a congregation and is outside of Christ, nevertheless making a, an outward profession of faith, what the older Reformed theologians would have called a hypocrite, mm-hmm. and if not elect— than a reprobate, that person, there's no way for us to know, right, as long as their life conforms outwardly to their profession. And yet, when this word comes to them, it has one effect. But to the believer or to an elect person who's about to come to faith, it has a different effect. It drives them to Christ and teaches them the greatness of their sin and misery. Right. And so, if for no other reason, we ought not to shy away from these warnings. Right. And notice how, importantly, verse 12 of chapter 3 puts things. The first concern that we should have is whether we have an evil, unbelieving heart. The root sin is always unbelief. The source of every other sin is ultimately unbelief. And that's why the Reformation, I believe, got it exactly right. Faith is the foundational Christian reality and experience because it leads to everything else. And so it says there, beware that you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. All of the references to disobedience later in these two chapters, are looking at the fruit of unbelief. Disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. And for people not to be able to make that distinction is to fail to understand the dynamic of biblical religion. Gross disobedience is a sign of unbelief. And that's why disobedience can be attacked so appropriately, so strongly as it is here, because it has sign value of what's really going on in the heart in terms of belief. From Westminster Seminary, California. And what is the remedy for gross disobedience? I think that's huge. Well, the first remedy is to ask whether you have a believing heart. 
and to be renewed in faith, because true faith always leads to repentance, and true faith always leads to sanctification. That's where I wanted to get. I mean, sometimes one gets the impression from the way some people talk about these kinds of issues that the remedy is to behave better. And to be sure, that's an outcome. Nobody doubts that. If anybody says the outcome is indifferent, well, that's antinomianism, and Hebrews has no time for that. But the remedy is repentance and belief. And so let's talk for a moment about what real repentance is, because I don't think that necessarily we're all on the same page as to what repentance is, and then we'll talk about what true faith is. Again, Psalm 95 illustrates this nicely for us. If you hear that God loathes some of his people, what is the reaction of true faith? I think true faith has to say, am I one of those? I don't want to be loathed by God. I want to, I want to believe God. I want to trust God. It's very interesting. Psalm 95 begins by saying, God is the rock of our salvation. And of course, in Exodus 17, it's out of the rock that the water of life flows to the people of God. God is the life giver. And true repentance is seeing where I am distant from the reality of God. It's a recognition of my failure to uh, embrace the holiness to which God calls me and to grieve over that, to, to be sorrowful for that. That's the beginning of repentance. And to turn away from it. And then to turn away from it. Yeah. And then true repentance is really, as you taught me many years ago when I was a student, is really the fruit of faith, right? Unbelievers don't repent. Exactly. And that, I think, is so important because who is it that repents? It is those whom God the Holy Spirit has enlivened by his gospel through the preached word, made alive, given faith, and created a union with Christ. And out of that comes true repentance, a recognition of sin, a turning away from it, and then faith, an outward articulation of faith, and an embracing of Christ. In the context of Hebrews and beyond, what is true faith? True faith, as Hebrews says, is the good news that comes in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that you don't need to stand with Moses and be a servant in the house of God, but are in Christ a son, part of the builder of the house of God. And so true faith embraces that for oneself. Right. Trusts in that, rests in that, leans on Christ. And that's why the big picture of Hebrews is so critical. Is Christ better? Is he better than Moses? Is he better than Aaron? Is he better than the sacrifices of the temple? And true faith says, yes, he's everything. He's done it all, and my life, my hope, my reality is in him which seems to echo chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Right. And I think some dangerous interpreters here have said, well, unbelief and disobedience are just the same thing. They're not the same thing. There's a priority here. The unbelief as to whether God was present or not led to the grumbling, to the disobedience, to the turning against God, to the rejection of Moses, to all of those sins. Disobedience is a fruit of unbelief, and I think Hebrews 3 and 4 teach that very clearly. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.